0: This evening, we're continuing our overview of the fifth book found in the Old Testament, which is titled Deuteronomy. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 26, we find Moses. He's continuing to prepare the Israelites for their entrance into the promised land. And as he did, he took the time to give these Israelites instructions regarding the way that the Lord was calling them to worship their Redeemer with the first fruits of their land as well as with their financial tithes and offerings. And as we explore the encouragements that are found here in this chapter, we're also going to consider how the Lord is also calling every Christian to worship him with first fruit gifts and financial offerings. Well, with this as our focus, let's jump right into our study of Deuteronomy chapter 26. If you would, look with me beginning there at verse 1, because there Moses declares... And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. You shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God my father was a Syrian about to perish and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice, and looked on our affliction, and our labor, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levites and the stranger who is among you. Now, here in these verses, we find Moses, he's encouraging the children of Israel to worship the Lord their God, and to do so with the firstfruits of their land. And he's helping them to understand that this offering was, in fact, an act of worship. And in order to understand what this all means, I should first point out that when we consider these first fruit offerings, it will help us to know that the word first, it's translated from a Hebrew word which means beginning and it also means best. The word translated fruit, well it comes from a Hebrew word which literally refers to the produce of the ground such as wheat or grapes, figs or pomegranates or anything else like that. And not only that, but this Hebrew word was also used to refer to the firstborn offspring of their flocks and their families. And not only that, but this word metaphorically refers to the products that are produced through the working of the hands or manual labor. Well, in order to narrow the scope of what Moses was actually talking about, we should look again there at verse 1, because there Moses declares that it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground. And he tells them to put it in a basket and bring it before the Lord at the place where the Lord chooses. And so we see here that Moses was specifically referring to the first fruits of the ground or the produce that would grow from their land. And he was calling them to take the first fruits or or, or the first of the harvest and place those fruits In a basket and bring them there to the tabernacle. That's what he means when he says to bring the basket to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. This was the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 23, Moses declares, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And in Leviticus 23, we learn that the first fruits offering would be presented to the Lord two days. After the Passover celebration. And so they would go to where the tabernacle was, where the name of the Lord would abide. And two days after the Passover, they would present this basket of the first fruits of their harvest. It's for this reason that Moses tied this offering together, this first fruits offering. He ties it together with the exodus from Egypt, right here in our text. Notice with me again there in verse 4, there Moses tells the Israelites that the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Now, Here in these verses, Moses here is directing the children of Israel Israel to present their first fruit offering while reciting the events that led Jacob and his family into Egypt where they were eventually enslaved. And not only were they supposed to remember their captivity there in Egypt, but as they presented this first fruits basket, they were also supposed to remember their salvation from Egypt. Notice with me again there at verse 7. There Moses is directing the Israelites to present this offering while declaring that they cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our our oppression. So they were were afflicted, they were were, having to work, they were being oppressed. And so the Lord, verse 8, brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. Not only did he bring them out of this bondage, but there in verse 9, Moses reminds them that he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now here in these verses, we find Moses tying the first fruits offering to the exodus of Israel from their bondage there in Egypt. And what this means is that this presentation of the first fruits was actually an Annual offering of appreciation every year as they harvested the first fruits. There at the time of the Passover, they would bring these first fruits to the Lord and say, Thank you. Thank you for bringing us out of Egypt. Thank you for bringing us to a land where produce is plentiful. Here's a small portion. Here's the first fruits of our harvest. This yearly gift of thankfulness was not only designed as an act of worship towards God, but it was designed to remind the Israelites that the Lord is the one who freed them from Egypt and brought them into this land flowing with an abundance of produce. And with that being the case, this offering, it has less to do with God needing a basket of fruit. And it has more to do with the Israelites... Needing to remember where all of their blessings come from. God doesn't need a basket of fruit. God made fruit. He doesn't need our basket of fruit. But we need to remember for our own good where our blessings come from. And in order to understand how this applies to us here in the church age you would hold your place here in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And as you turn to 1 Corinthians 16, I want to compare the Egyptian bondage of the Israelites to the spiritual bondage that we experienced before we were set free by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because listen, much like the Israelites who were in bondage to the slave driver known as Pharaoh, Every unbeliever right now is living in bondage to the slave driver known as Satan. And they might be working really hard to to not be bound to those things that they're, they're in bondage to, but still, they're in bondage to the slave driver Satan. And much like Moses, who by the power of God comes along, produces these Incredible miracles until the Pharaoh finally just says, get out of Egypt, I don't want to see you anymore. Moses, by the power of God, broke the chains of their captivity. And in similar fashion, the Lord Jesus came along and by the power of the Holy Spirit died for our sins upon the cross so that the chains of our spiritual bondage could be broken. Now, those who will simply trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can be set free from our spiritual bondage. We're no longer bound to our carnal nature. We still have a carnal nature. We're just no longer bound to it. We don't have to obey it anymore. And not only are we freed from our spiritual nature, but the Lord is leading us into a a spiritual land of milk and honey, if you will. In other words, the Lord wants to lead us away from Egypt and into the bounty of His blessings. And, and we begin to experience those blessings. Before we came to Jesus, maybe our life was really just kind of falling apart, and now we're walking with the Lord and He's blessing us. And the Lord is helping us to understand how to take what He's given us and use it for His glory. And as we begin to experience the blessings of the Lord, it's easy to come to a place where we we start thinking that, hey, these blessings are all mine, and it's all my doing. Look what I've done for myself. Isn't it easy to find ourselves in that place where we start thinking that every blessing in our life is something that we produced by our power? And as that mentality starts to creep back into our lives, rather than being satisfied with the provisions of God, we start thinking, well, why don't I have more? Why can't I have more of this? And why can't I have more of that? And we begin to crave things that God doesn't have for us. And what ends up happening at that point in time? Well, we end up looking back to spiritual Egypt. We end up craving the sinful pleasures that we used to be in bondage to before we came to Christ. And if these desires go left unchecked, then the ungrateful Christian will soon find themselves returning to the bondage of Egypt in search of their sinful pleasures. It's for this reason that the philosophy that's behind the first fruits offering, I believe, should be practiced by every Christian. Now, in order to explain what I mean, look with me there at First Corinthians 16 I want to begin reading at verse 1 because there Paul declares, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each of you or let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's writing to the Christians there in Corinth, and he's telling them, hey, I'm on my way there. And he tells them to take up a collection on the first day of the week, right? And Paul seems to be using here the Old Covenant concept of the first fruits offering, but he's using it in a new covenant way. And he did this by encouraging these Christians at the church there in Corinth to present a firstfruits offering of the week to God. At the first of the week, come together and take up that collection to lay something aside for the work of God. With this in mind, notice again there in verse 2. There Paul declares on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, here in this verse, Paul's here encouraging the Christians in Corinth to lay something aside on the first day of the week. And one of the things that I want to point out about this, one of the things that this means to us is that Paul was calling these Christians to give the Lord the first fruits of their week, which was, was the first fruits of their time. He's saying, hey, you guys need to be getting together on the first day of the week. I'll, I'll remind you here that the first century church, they began to meet on Sunday because this was the day when the Lord rose up from the grave. The Lord rose up on a Sunday, and so the church began to worship our resurrected Savior on Sunday. Not only that, but I should also point out that Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one to rise up from the grave, to rise up from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Therefore, it only makes sense that those who follow Christ... Should also gather together every Sunday in order to celebrate our freedom from spiritual Egypt because Jesus rose from the grave, so too will those who trust in Him. Jesus is the first fruits, and we will follow. And so Sunday is the day that we get together, we give God the first fruits of our week, the first fruits of our time, and we worship the first fruits of the resurrection. And not only was Paul encouraging the Christians there in Corinth to give God the firstfruits of their time, but there in verse 2 he also encourages them to give God the firstfruits of their finances by directing them to lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Or in other words, Paul was telling his Christians to set aside a portion of their earnings based on the profits that they made during the week. And he's telling them to set this amount aside each and every week And listen, as we put Paul's encouragement here into practice in our own lives, here's what we end up doing. We end up safeguarding ourselves from returning to spiritual Egypt. You see, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money any more than he needed the Israelites' basket of fruit. And so why is it that God is directing us through Paul here to lay something aside each week for the work of the ministry. Well, Christian, we must remember that our carnal nature is constantly crying out for the sinful pleasures of spiritual Egypt. We're constantly looking back to the life that we had and we begin to distort things in our mind and we start thinking, well, that was a good time, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't. I know I was miserable in my good time before Christ. And yet there's still that carnal craving there that draws me back into that lifestyle. And and listen, the last thing that our flesh wants is to wake up early on Sunday morning and go to church and worship God, especially with our finances. It's the last thing that we want. Our flesh? Well, our flesh wants to sleep in Sunday morning and then wake up and take that money that really belongs to God and go and use it on something that we want. That's what our flesh wants. Therefore, whenever we begin to make excuses for why we can't make it to church on Sunday, uh, we really need to stop and check ourselves. And when we desire to not show up to church on Sunday, we need to ask ourselves, Self, why shouldn't I go to church and offer the first fruits of my week to the Lord? What's more important than that on Sunday morning? Oh, there's a marathon. Got to go run a marathon. That's more important than the Lord? Well, you know, there's a little get-together happening at the lake, and we're going to all take our jet skis out. and have... That's more important than showing up to church and worshiping the Lord? Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a job that works you on Sunday, and there's nothing you can do about that, the Lord has to help with that. The Lord has to work in that. And I would just encourage you that if you do have a boss who works you on Sunday, don't hesitate to go and say, hey, look, I really want to be at church on Sunday. Can you fix my schedule? You ought to ask. But if you have a job that keeps you from showing up to church on Sunday, that's, that's one thing. I'm just talking about people who are just kind of like, well, Sunday morning, I'd you know, rather do something else. Well, I went last Sunday. I mean, I don't want to become legalistic about going to church, Right? Well, yeah, I don't become legalistic about going to church. But the right mindset is, where would I rather be? The Lord has set me free from spiritual bondage. I want to give him the first fruits of my week. Because it grounds me. And if I'm here every Sunday, then I can only get a week away from my fellowship with the Lord and his body. Please hear me when I tell you that the Christian who starts skipping church for various reasons, whenever we start making excuses for why we can't worship the Lord with our financial offerings, we need to stop and check ourselves and we need to ask ourselves, Self, am I forgetting that the Lord is the one who's provided me with all of these financial blessings? Am I forgetting that everything that I have right now is actually a gift from God and I can't worship him with just a little bit of it? When we start skipping church for various reasons, when we start making excuses for why we can't worship God with our finances, aren't we really just beginning to forget that the Lord is the one who has freed us from spiritual Egypt? If we refuse to lay something aside on the first day of the week, as as Paul recommends, aren't we just forgetting that our Redeemer is alone worthy to be worshipped with the first fruits of our financial offerings? And and then aren't we the ones who are just taking the finances that He's given to us and we're just saying, I'm going to worship Me with this money? I'm going to worship Me because this is what I really want. Now, if this sounds like something you've been struggling with, then I would just encourage you to change your mind, repent, and return to your first love. Return to the one who redeemed you from spiritual Egypt. And we do this by simply committing the first fruits of our time, the first fruits of our talents and the first fruits of our treasure to the Savior who set us free from the bondage of our sinful nature. Now, in light of this topic, you might be a Christian who is here tonight and you're struggling to understand, well, what should I be giving to God? What does this look like? How much should I set aside? How much should I lay aside and worship the Lord with? Well, in order to answer this question, I first want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 26. And as you do, I want to begin reading there at verse 12, because there Moses declares... When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house, and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here in these verses, we find Moses. He's reminding the Israelites that they were not only supposed to present the first fruits of their produce, but they were also supposed to set aside this yearly tithe, which would be used to support the priests and the Levites who served the Lord continuously. And not only that, but here in our text, Moses is telling them that they were supposed to present a tithe every three years, which was designed to bless the underprivileged people of Israel. As a matter of fact, notice again there, verse 12, Moses tells us that the tithe of their increase in the third year would be given to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within the gates and be filled. Now from this, we see that Moses was calling the children of Israel to use their resources to support the Levites who served the Lord there in the tabernacle. And not only that, but they were also to be used to care for the poor and the needy there in Israel. And they were supposed to take this portion of their finances and set it aside and give that every three years. Now, it will help us to understand that the word tithe, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word which refers to the tenth part of something. And so a tithe means tenth. And based on this word, there are actually many Christian pastors who believe and teach that the Christian is required to give a tenth of their income to God as they lay something aside for his worship and for his work. And chances are many of us here have grown up with that belief. We were taught it when we were young. We grew up believing that you set aside a tenth for God, a tenth of our income, it's God's. Yet I'm here to tell you that this is not only a distortion of the Old Testament tithe, But it's also a distortion of the New Testament teaching of gifts and offerings. Now in order to explain what I mean by this, hold your place here in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning to 2 Corinthians 9, I want to point out that when you add up all three of the Old Testament tithes that are taught by Moses, if you add up all three of the tithes that the children of Israel were required to give, it actually added up to roughly 23% of their income. So the idea of 10%, it doesn't fly. It was actually more than 10%. If we're looking to the Old Testament law then the and and saying, well, you know, as Christians, let's follow what the Old Testament law says. The the New Testament doesn't tell us how much we should be giving, and so let's follow what the Old Testament says. And if that's your philosophy, then 23% is the proper number. Now, you might owe some back tithes, and there's an offering envelope there in the back of that chair, and you're more than welcome to square this away with God tonight. Seriously, though, I'm happy to tell you that those who are in Christ, we are no longer under the law. We're not under the law. So why would we go back to the law in order to figure out what grace-giving is about? Here in this age of grace, the Lord wants to spiritually lead us into this new liberty of grace-giving. And with this in mind, look with me there at Second Corinthians 9. I want to begin reading at verse 5 because there Paul writes, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to, uh, to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he proposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now here in these verses we find Paul describing what I like to call grace-giving. And in order to better understand the New Testament concept of grace-giving, I think that we should take some time to explore the characteristics that Paul presents to the Christians there in Corinth. And I should begin by pointing out that grace-giving is based on promise and not on law. Notice again there in verse 5. There Paul writes, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. From this we see that Paul wasn't pointing back to the law. He wasn't saying, hey, this gift that you were previously required to give under the law. No, he doesn't say that. He's just talking about this gift that was previously promised. What this means is that these believers, they were so moved to give to the work of God that they were prompted to promise a portion of their income to God. And they declared, hey, I've got this, and I just want to give it to God. It was a gift that was based in their promise, not based on the law. And not only was this financial offering based on promise, but it was also an act of praise. With this in mind, look with me there at verse 5. There again Paul writes, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Grace giving isn't a grudging obligation. It was, it's not like, well, I just, I guess I've got to give something. Here comes the plate. No, we don't even pass a plate here. I don't want anybody to, to give grudge money here. It'll never be said that Calvary South Austin was built upon grudge money. Well, they were selling bricks, and I guess I've got to get a brick so I can have my name on it, because I don't want people to walk up to the church and find out that I don't have a brick with a name on it. Oh, I just hate that kind of stuff. I really do. No, it's not about a grudging obligation. It's about generosity. And the word generous or generosity there in the text is translated from a Greek word which refers to the consecrated blessings which were collected by Christians. And not only that, but this word generosity, it also refers to the benediction of praise which is to be offered to God alone. Therefore, according to Paul, when we lay aside our generous offerings every Sunday, we're worshiping. We're praising God with the money that he's given to us. It's his money. We're just taking a portion of it and saying, I want to praise you with this. I want to give you this generous gift as an act of praise. And not only is grace giving an act of praise, which is based on a promise, but grace is also an act of faith. But this in mind, look with me there at verse 6, where Paul declares, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, I don't have time to get into all the heresy that people teach from this verse. Well, if you give with faith, you plant that seed of faith, and you're going to get, if you get, look, that's not what we're saying here. That's not what Paul Paul was saying, And, and I would just encourage you to turn off any teacher who's trying to tell you that you'll get a hundredfold increase if you just send them your money. Paul's helping us to understand here that those who worship God with financial offerings are actually worshiping and praising him with faith. They're taking maybe just a little bit of what they have and can't really afford to give. They're saying, you know what, I'm going to give this to God because I know he's going to give me more back. I'm not giving to get more back. I'm giving because I know he's going to bless me because he's a God of blessings. You see the different twist there? It's not giving to get. It's giving because I want to praise and I have faith. That God's going to take care of me. And if I give a little bit, then He's going to take care of me a little bit. And if I give a whole lot, well, He's going to take care of me a whole lot. So how much faith do you have? How much faith do you actually have that God is going to take care of you? Can you outgive God? I know I can't. I never have. And I never will be able to. As much as I've ever given God, He's given me so much more. But if you give to get, well... Don't be surprised if you don't get anything, because you're giving for the wrong reason. So we see that grace-giving, is it's a faith-based promise that brings praise to God. And not only that, but it's something that should bring joy into our lives. If you would, look with me beginning there at verse 7. There Paul declares, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. ha, ha, ha. A cheerful giver. Not, a, not someone who gives out of grudging obligation, but a cheerful giver. And this word cheerful is translated from the Greek word hilaros, which is where we get our English word hilarious from. When you're writing that check and sticking it in the envelope, it ought to be hilarious. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense at all. This is hilarious what I'm doing here. That's what our giving should be like. And it should bring a joy to our life of saying, you know what, I'm giving this to God. And I know that he's going to bless it and use it and further the gospel with it. He's going to bless our children with it. He's going to do so much more with it than I could do. So as we drop off our offering into that collection container there in the back of the room, we ought to be laughing. We ought to be joyful, knowing that God is going to to use that money and bless it and glorify himself with it. Now, as we consider all of this, we should come to the conclusion that Christians have been called to lay something aside on the first day of the week, which means that we ought to be at church on the first day of the week, and we ought to be laying something aside financially so that as we arrive at church and present the Lord with our first fruit offering, uh, we're we're giving graciously and joyfully, knowing that our gift is is a promise to God and it brings praise to the one who saved us from the bondage of spiritual Egypt. Now, please don't misunderstand me, because I'm not suggesting that believers are required to bring God the first fruits of our time, talent, and treasure. Don't get it twisted here and, and begin to think that Bungie's teaching that we have to be givers in order to go to heaven. No, we're saved by faith, not by works. We're saved by faith and faith alone. Faith in God's grace. However, at the same time, I would encourage you to understand that those believers who have no desire to become a grace giver, I wonder, do they really know God? Do they really know the grace that they've received by faith? Do they really grasp what God has given them freely? Listen, I believe that the Christian who fails to become a grace giver is also missing out on the blessings that come to those who become those generous givers. And in order to explain what I mean, let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 26, where Moses lists some of the blessings that are bestowed upon those who give to God generously. If you would look with me there at verse 16. There Moses declares, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways, and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you, that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you on high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord, your God, just as he has spoken. Now here in these final verses, we find Moses, he's assuring the Israelites that those who came and presented their first fruits offerings there at the tabernacle, those who brought their tithes, they would also be able to rest in the fact that they were the special people of God. They were the ones who got to come to the tabernacle. They were the ones who got to worship God there before that pillar of fire. And not only that, but those Israelites who were happily bringing their tithes to the tabernacle, they would also begin to realize that the Lord was setting them high above all the nations which he had made. The Lord was lifting these guys up and saying, this is what it looks like to worship God. This is what it looks like to walk in obedience with the Lord. And as a result, this would be a people group who would have more praise, they would have a greater name, they would receive greater honor than any other nation as they walked in the holiness of the Lord. And listen, I believe that it's in similar fashion, that the Lord also exalts the church whenever believers begin to commit themselves to presenting the first fruits of our time and our talent and our treasure to the work of the Lord. Case in point. Consider the difference between the church in the book of Acts. There in that, the, 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 that, that first stage of the church directly after the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Compare that church to the church that we find in the book of Revelation. You see, the church in the book of Acts, they took what they had by the leading of the Holy Spirit... They placed it before the apostles' feet, who they then distributed to those in need. And they committed their time and their talent and their treasure to the work of God. And as a result, we read all about the ways that God added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the reason why is because the world was able to clearly see the favor of the Lord in the lives of those believers who were fully committed to their faith. The world could look at the church and say, these people really believe what they preach. And the Lord blessed it. But now consider the lukewarm church of Laodicea, which many commentators believe refers to the state of the church just prior to the rapture. In Revelation 3, the Lord refers to these Christians as financially wealthy, and yet he calls them spiritually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These Christians who were financially wealthy, but spiritually, they were missing it. They weren't committing the first fruits of their time and their talent and their treasure to the Lord. And rather than serving the Lord with reckless abandon like the early first century church, These Christians, they became lukewarm in their faith, and as a result, they were no longer making an impact on this fallen world. It's for this reason that Jesus tells them. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You're neither on fire for me, neither are you just living for Satan either. You're just kind of right there in the middle, sitting on the fence. You're not really going for it, spiritually speaking, and you're not really just out there doing the worst sins ever either. You're just kind of sitting on the fence. Jesus says to them, I could wish that you were cold or hot. In other words, get in the church and get on fire or go out in the world and live like the devil. One or the other. Make up your mind. Quit playing church and get serious. But he says, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Or in other words, more simply put, you make me sick. That's what he's saying. I didn't say that. Well, that's pretty harsh, Bungie. I didn't say it. I just read it. The Lord said it. If you're lukewarm as a Christian, you make me sick. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't know about you, but I don't want to make the Lord sick. I don't want to be a believer who is missing out on what the Lord has for me. I would rather be a believer who's walking in the favor of the Lord than a believer who makes the Lord sick to his stomach. And if you agree with me, then I want to encourage you to become believers who are cheerfully and faithfully giving God the firstfruits of our time, showing up to church on Sunday, of our talent, serving Him as we get here, and our treasure, taking the finances that He blessed us with and just taking a portion of it and saying, here, Lord, do something with this. We need to be cheerfully and faithfully giving God the first fruits of our time and our talent and our treasure. And as we do, I believe that the favor of the Lord will once again be evident in our lives. And the world will look at that. They'll see the favor of God in our lives and they'll want to know the one who was sent to save us from our spiritual bondage by dying on the cross for our sins. Let's pray.